Good evening. The next lecture in this series is on Monday, the 26th of November, I think it is. Is Monday at 26? Thank you. Uh, Richard Flint, who is curator of prints and photographs at the Peel Museum in Baltimore and an expert on 19th century circus posters and circus printing, will be speaking here on ephemeral printing of the 19th century with particular reference to American circus printing. The following week, Monday the 3rd of December, Ellen Dunlap speaking on her first year as director of the Rosenbach Library and Museum in Philadelphia. And on the week following that, Monday, December 10th, David Vandermeulen from the University of Virginia speaking on bibliographical problems, especially as regards paper in early editions of Pope's Dunciad. And then to repeat an unannounced festivity that which the Friends of the Book Arts Press have yet to hear about, I'm ashamed to say, but will be very shortly, as well as uh, receiving an advance notice, the first notice of the Rare Book School 1985 courses. On Monday, the 17th of December, from 6 until about 10 o'clock, will be a Book Arts Press and New York chapter of the American Printing History Association combined Christmas party here at Columbia with the usual loop running of films that we have acquired in the past year in the graphic arts. The cycle will probably be in the neighborhood of two to two and a half hours, and you can come whenever you please and stop off for popcorn and the Book Arts Press equivalent anytime you decide that you've had enough graphic arts for half an hour or so. Christmas goodies, as usual, will be, will be welcome. It's our great pleasure now to welcome back to this podium uh, a particularly frequent visitor to it and one whom we are always very glad to see indeed, Mr. John Dreyfus, who needs no introduction to this audience. Sir. Thank you, Terry. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Is this all right for volume all around? I hope so. Every time I travel across the United States, I'm struck by the way a new catchphrase has caught on. Wherever I've been this trip, the favorite description for something of outstanding quality has been world class. I, I think the phrase took off in Los Angeles during the Olympics but is now spread far and wide to all kinds of consumer goods and services, and I do wish it was used with greater discrimination and related more closely to quality than price. I've even seen, on one occasion, it linked with another elastic catchphrase, world-class goods at affordable prices. Well, I've no hesitation in describing the 1931 edition of the Four Gospels published by the Golden Cockrell Press as being a world-class illustrated book. 500 copies of it were printed, and as it's no longer available at an easily affordable price, you'll need around $3,000, I think, if you want to start looking for one tomorrow, I believe it'll interest you to hear tonight how that book came into existence and to see from my slides something of its quality. A few of my slides will be familiar to some of you who have already heard me talk here about Eric Gill's book illustrations and type designs, but you will receive a much fuller account this evening of the collaboration with his close friend Robert Gibbings in producing the Golden Cockle Press edition of the Four Gospels. 
It used to surprise me that there have been so few illustrated editions of the four Gospels until I understood the reason. When you come to think about it, these Gospels give four accounts of the same events, and the similarities are particularly close in the first three which are known as the Synoptic Gospels because they share the same synoptic view of the events. I believe that one reason why the Gospels appealed to the two men who planned and produced the Golden Cockrell Press edition is that they were both sons of Anglican clergymen. Examining the subjects they chose for illustration and the way capital letters were used by them to emphasize passages in the Gospels which are central to Christian belief has convinced me that they both had a close knowledge and understanding of all four Gospels and that they planned their edition with this great advantage. The two men also shared a viewpoint which I find attractive and which they made plain when their edition was first announced in 1928. The prospectus they issued in the spring of that year had this to say about their planned edition. Now I quote, While it is of course the intention of the Golden Cockerel Press, meaning Robert Gibbings, its director, and the engraver, meaning Eric Gill, to avoid anything which could be justly called flippant or irreverent, nevertheless it is their aim to present in this book a lively and even amusing view of the grandest story in the world. Lively because the central figure in that story came, quotes, that he might give life. Amusing because, while it's easy to take things too seriously, it isn't possible to take them too cheerfully. Nevertheless, the spirit of this edition will not be merely eccentric. On the contrary, the orthodox and traditional interpretation of the story will, in all respects, be followed. Many years after Gibbings put out that announcement, I met him and worked with him on a book for the Limited Editions Club, and I find it typical of that huge and happy man to have described the Gospels as the grandest story in the world. I'm pretty sure that he used that expression in the sense that he thought it a jolly good yarn, the way perhaps an American might say that's grand without meaning that the thing was solemn or imposing. And his phrase about it being impossible to take things too cheerfully brings back to me in a flash his merry blue eyes which gaze down at me from a great height and out of a huge frame. Gibbings wasn't the founder of the Golden Cockerel Press. It had been started in 1920 about a man named Harold Taylor who knew and cared more about literature than about printing. In 1923, Taylor commissioned Gibbings to illustrate a book for him, but soon afterwards Taylor's health broke down and, through a friend, Gibbings was able to buy the press and to become its director. Gibbings was both a sculptor and a wood engraver. He was a founder member of the Society of Wood Engravers, and from the time of its first meetings in London in 1920, he became a close friend of his fellow member, Eric Gill who was also a sculptor and a wood engraver. By the time they met, Gill had been a Roman Catholic for eight years, but, as you'll learn later, this partial divergence in their religious beliefs seems only to have added zest to their friendship. Between 1925 and 1931, the date when their edition of the Four Gospels was published, Gill engraved illustrations for nine Golden Cockerel Press books and those involved him in making well over 300 separate engravings. 
1928, Gill agreed to work exclusively for the Golden Cockerel Press insofar as his activities with book work and book illustration were concerned. And during that long period of collaboration with Gibbings, he often went to stay with Robert and his wife Moira Gibbings. She also took an active part in running the press. The three of them larked about in the nude on the grass and got up to a number of things which weren't at all eccentric in English artistic circles of that time. But what was far more uncommon then, and still is today, was their approach to the problem of planning an illustrated edition of the Four Gospels. It had become clear to them during their long collaboration on other works that the success of an illustrated book depended largely upon the degree of harmony that was achieved between the type used for the text and the illustrations placed within the text. Fortunately for both of them, Gill became involved in 1925 with providing type designs to the Monotype Corporation at the suggestion of his friend Stanley Morrison. At first, all that Gill did was to provide drawings, in a large scale, of the style of letter which he'd become accustomed to using when he cut stone inscriptions. Morrison then turned over his large-scale drawings to a punch cutter who produced modified versions of Gill's letter forms in the much smaller sizes needed for printer's types. But from about 1928, Gill began to take a lively interest in how types were actually made. Once this happened, it occurred to Gibbings and Gill that the best way of securing the degree of harmony they wanted between type and illustration would be for Gill to design a new type solely for the use of the Golden Cockerel Press, where texts were still set by hand. Naturally, Gill would design the type to achieve the greatest possible harmony between his wood engraved illustrations and his type. Furthermore, Gill could turn for advice on matters of type design to Stanley Morrison, even though the Golden Cockerel type was made for hand composition by the Caslon Type Foundry and not for mechanical composition by Monotype. From Gill's diaries, it's clear that on a number of occasions he went straight from Morrison's office on to the Golden Cockerel Press or to the Caslon Type Foundry. Once the type was delivered, the entire text of all four Gospels was composed and proofed in page form. Now what was quite exceptional about these page proofs was that spaces were left of widely different sizes at places where it had been agreed by Gill and Gibbings that an illustration or decoration should appear. Gill in fact only began to draw sketches for his wood engraved illustrations after he'd received those page proofs. His sketches were actually made in the spaces left for his engravings on those proofs. This was quite different from the usual way of making an illustrated book. Normally, an artist engraved his illustrations without seeing more than a sample page of the book. And when he'd completed his set of engravings, the printer had to fit them in with the text as best he could. With that method of working, the results inevitably lacked the degree of harmony and also the appropriate variety of shape which is really needed. Another unusual and practically unique feature of the Golden Cockerel edition of the Four Gospels is that the illustrations actually form part of the typography. That's to say, the illustrations are closely interwoven with an initial or with a complete word. In doing this, Gill showed an astonishing inventiveness in the way he handled his letter forms and in the way he placed 
his highly stylized figures between his letters. I describe his figures as highly stylized, but you will notice that several of his women have their hair bobbed in a style that is distinctly 1920-ish in character. The collaboration between Gill and Gibbings was particularly happy. Gibbings described Gill as being both modest and professional. He was, said Gibbings, tremendously conscientious about delivering work on time. When Gibbings gave him a date for completing a wood engraving, Gibbings could answer the postman's knock when the day came with complete assurance that a parcel would be put into his hands addressed to him in Gill's precise calligraphy. Well, I think I've now given you enough background information for you to be ready to view my slides. So if we can now have the lights lowered, I'll start by showing you portraits of the two men. Uh, I seem to be pressing but not uh, achieving, and I'm doing the middle. Can we do... Shall I start again? Two together, you said, didn't you? Two metal ones. You get me off the hook. But we have a technical fault. And then you press now the outside cured. one to make it go. Okay. Terry, would you be kind enough to get that in focus as you'll see it ba better? When this comes uh, into focus, you will see that it's... I'll wait for it. A photograph, thank you very much of Gill taken about the time when he was also hard at work on his engravings for the four Gospels. The stone he has started to carve was begun in 1930 and completed in 1932, but its present whereabouts aren't known. However, the Humanities Research Center at Austin has the crucifix, which you can see just to the left of his head, and this he cut in Bath Stone in 1925. Now, though Gill's main activity was as a sculptor, he was also an exceptionally gifted designer of letters. And above the crucifix, near the top left corner of this photo, you can see a stone inscription he cut in 1903 and which had belonged for many years to his father. I can show you a reproduction of that fine inscription because it was reproduced by an excellent photographic technique called color type in Edward Johnston's book on writing and illuminating and lettering published in 1906. Johnston said of this very early inscription cut by Gill that even in color type he thought it showed to what a high level modern inscription cutting might be raised by the use of good models and right and simple methods. Gill's friend Robert Gibbings was best known for his engraving on wood, but Gibbings also turned his hand to sculpture. And here you see him at work about the year 1933, a couple of years after the four Gospels had been published. The style of the two men's sculpture had a good deal in common, as you can see from the stone on which Gibbings is here at work. The treatment of the hair on the lovers' heads is very like Gill's. Gill and Gibbings also shared an enthusiasm for wood engraving and this brought them together, as I told you, at meetings of the Society of Wood Engravers for which Gill engraved this device used on a poster by that society. Gill made this design in 1920, the year when the society was founded, and he and Gibbings were both founder members. Several other members became famous for their wood engraved book illustrations. Uh, among them was Gordon Craig, uh, Lucien Pissarro, 
are the son of the painter Camille Gwenravara and John Nash. For many years, Gill had drawn lettering for fine books. This title page was lettered by Gill uh, for a book about Gauguin, which Count Harry Kessler printed at Weimar some years before he started his Cranach Press. The gap in the center of this page was later filled with an engraving by another artist. Through working for private presses, such as uh, the Cranach Press and the English Doves Press, Gill built up quite a reputation for his abilities as a letterer. But from about 1910, he devoted more and more of his time to sculpture in stone, and perhaps his best-known commission was for the Stations of the Cross, which he cut for Westminster Cathedral in London, the main Catholic place of worship there, not to be confused with Westminster Abbey, which is Anglican, the uh, seat of the Church of England. This commission brought into full play Gill's talents as a sculptor and his mastery of letter cutting. Unfortunately, these stations of the cross are very dimly lit and are so high above the ground that they are difficult to photograph. But nonetheless, I think this slide does give you some idea of the level of excellence he had reached long before he tackled the illustrations for the four Gospels. These stations of the cross were completed between 1914 and 1918, more than 10 years before he even started work on illustrating the four Gospels. His first illustrations for the Golden Cockerel Press were published in 1925. They'd been engraved for a book called Sonnets and Verses written by his sister, Enid Clay. Gibbings later recalled that there'd been very little that could be called planning between the illustrator and the printer when this book was in course of preparation. Enid Clay sent Gibbings the manuscript, her brother sent in the wood engravings, and Gibbings put them together as best he could. There was no real marriage between wood and metal, and the blocks, as Gibbings put it, had little more than a brotherly-sisterly relationship, because the designing and engraving of the illustrations had not been held up until the type had been set. Many years later, I got to understand Gibbings's ideas through collaborating with him during the 1950s, when he looked very much as you see him in this photo, taken in 1949. Here you see him working away at a wood engraving through a magnifying glass, and you can also see five of his tools just in front of his hands. The can of talcum powder to the left of the tools would be shaken into the engraved surface of the wood block from time to time to fill in the lines he'd cut and thereby to simulate the effect of the background of white paper on which the block would finally be printed. But let's now return to the manner in which Gibbings and Gill repeatedly collaborated on books published by the Golden Cockerel Press between 1925 and 1931. And let me show you two pages from an edition of Troilus and Cressida published by the Golden Cockerel Press in 1927. Of these pages, Gibbings wrote, the engravings are in the form of very delicate borders, almost identical with the weight of the type, so that the page is an entirely even texture, a texture which was picked out occasionally with some rubrication and colored initials. But although these pages clearly have far greater harmony than those I showed you from sonnets and verses, there's still a difference between the weight of the engravings and the weight of the 18th century Caslon type. 
and the engravings are simply marginal ornamentation. They're not incorporated into the text setting. With the experience Gill gained in the mid-twenties of designing types for the Monotype Corporation, it became possible for Gibbings and Gill to consider the creation of a new type for the sole use of the Golden Cockerel Press. But then the question arose of how to proceed with designing and making this new type. Gill began by studying, sorry, here we come, a few types which he much admired, such as the Caslon type, seen in the upper four lines on the screen, and also a fine Roman type shown below, which had been cut for Kessler's Cranach press, based on a late 15th century Roman similar to the one used by the great Venetian printer Jensen. Gill had photographic enlargements made of these four-line specimens so that he could make a closer study of the individual letter shapes. Both these specimens were set in a large size, which printers call 18-point. That's about twice the size of the type you're likely to find in a paperback. Next, Gill wrote out four lines from the Lord's Prayer, reproduced at the top of this slide. Now, those letters at the top, he was able to write in the 18-point size, which was to be used for the four Gospels, but he wrote those lines with an edged pen, knowing that the result would be pretty rough. So what he next did was to have those four lines at the top enlarged photographically eight times and then retouched the print. I'm going to make this clear again in a minute. When that enlarged print was reduced after his retouching, when it was reduced down to 18 point again, the result looked the way it does at the foot of this slide. Now, to help you appreciate what he did on the enlargement, here you see a detail which shows you how he regularized and improved the letters that he'd drawn on that much smaller scale by using process white and then correcting the letters with Indian ink. Having now found a method of attacking the design problem which satisfied him, he next drew out the entire alphabet of capitals and a few more lowercase letters. The finish of these letters was again quite rough because it was merely the first stage. Notice, by the way, how Gill, who was never a man to waste time, left out from the second line a number of capitals which he'd already drawn in the top line. The roughness of these letters can be better appreciated again if you look at them in this enlarged detail. But the time got the, but by the time that Gill got to work on cleaning up and regularizing the letters in this sketch, the result looked as crisp and even as this. Notice here another shortcut taken by Gill in drawing the H and the K together, leaving it to the type founder to use the right-hand stroke of the H for the left-hand stroke of the K. Naturally, he also had to supply drawings to guide the type founder in cutting the lowercase letters for which you see now his original designs. And here again, towards the end of the second line, he's combined his designs for the letters V and W and Y in one drawing, knowing that the typefinder could easily separate them, and also showing to the typefinder that he did want this degree of consistency between the design of the three letters. A year before he made these designs for the golden cockerel type, Gill had made a great many working drawings for a sans serif or block letter called Gill Sans, which he'd been commissioned to design for the Monotype Corporation. 
and these drawings show how effectively he could make his intentions clear to other workmen. That characteristic leg to his letter R is not only plainly drawn, but he explains by a few words in the right margin that the dotted white line, where the leg of the letter R joins the upper bowl, shows the slight curve that he wanted to give to this part of the letter. And I have the feeling that if you tried to press down that wonderful springy tail in the letter R, it would make a noise like doing. Uh, it's so nervy. Gil Sands has been cut. Gil Sands had been cut by means of a pantographic punch-cutting machine of the type now on the screen. The relief pattern of a letter R beneath the machine operator's hand isn't in fact a Gil R, but in this and in the next two slides I only want to give you some notion of how the golden cockerel type was manufactured. Not, you see, by punch-cutting by hand, but by this mechanical method. By following a large relief pattern in this way, and by applying the pantographic principle through adjusting the bars, which vanish out of the top edge of this photo, the machine will cut a punch in any desired size of reduction from the single relief pattern, and the punch cut in steel is next used to strike a matrix. The punch can be seen under the thumb of the machine minder's hand in the center of the screen, and the shiny piece of metal immediately below is the matrix, into which a reverse impression of the letter at the end of the punch has been struck. The typefinder puts the matrix into his typecasting machinery in order to produce type, which, in the case of the Golden Cockerel fonts, was set by hand in the composing room of the Golden Cockerel Press, of which you now see a plan. The building on which these operations took place was just a large wooden hut in the garden of the house where the founder of the press, Harold Taylor, had lived. And when Gibbings took it over, he installed central heating, but the rooms were lit with incandescent oil lamps. There were four men employed, two compositors and two pressmen. There were two platen presses marked K and L. That's in the center section. Can you see these all right? I'll, I'll, if I start by, that gives you some reference because you know where you are in the alphabetical order. Um, there were two platen presses marked K and L on the plan. K was a heavy Phoenix press of German make bought by Gibbings and L was a Victoria heavy platen that had been bought by Taylor. There was also a Columbia hand press marked N near the center at the foot of this plan, and here you can see that being used by one of the pressmen, A.C. Cooper, uh, a sharp-eyed uh, friend of mine in this country was upset that the eagle seems to be facing the wrong way, but I can't say whether any disrespect was intended. The hand press was used, among other things, for pulling proofs to send out to authors for corrections. Uh, in the case of the four Gospels, with none of the four evangelists available to correct their proofs, there was no danger of any proof correction, so the entire text was set to a plan previously agreed between Gibbings and Gill, with spaces left to be filled in by Gill um, for the engravings which he would subsequently engrave. Thank you so much. Yes, I can see that needs a little adjustment. I'll let that wait till it comes. It is rather critical, and this actually, when it's really sharp, tells a lot.
what part would you like me to focus on, John? It's different from top to bottom. I think if you focus on the top to begin with, so that we see his sketch, and uh, the that is coming fine. Thank you for your care. An exceptional amount of work went into the preparation of this opening page of the Gospel according to St. Matthew, which was also used for a, a specimen page to put out to prospective subscribers. Even before the paste-up for this page reached Gill, there had been, as you see, a great deal of cut and paste to reach this uh, arrangement. Into the initial N, Gill worked an illustration of the Epiphany, the festival which commemorates Christ's manifestation to the Gentiles in the person of the three wise men bearing gifts. Notice that the last six lines of this paste up, you don't need to change the focus, this is only to show the point that they were uh, not altered by cutting and pasting, and you'll notice that the right-hand edge of these six lines is even. That's to say, those lines were justified. Now, here's the specimen page distributed by the Golden Cockerel Press for the Four Gospels, done, I'm afraid, from a Xerox and missing a little bit of a sweep at the top of that end that would have come down. And notice here that all down this page, the right-hand edge is even, is justified. This, um, this shows how a change of intention took place, because on this photograph of the book as it finally appeared, I'm sorry, this, I'm getting myself muddled now, um, have we skipped one, no, yes I'm sorry, it's the angle that I was at that prevented me from seeing what, what should be. Notice here the edges of the lines at the left are deliberately ragged, now can you all see that here, because from my oblique angle, Imagine a straight line going down. You see, the lines are no longer justified. And this is the way in which it was done, and this change was made at Gill's insistence. He had firm views about even spacing between words being preferable to even line endings at the right, and you can't have both at the same time unless you mess about with a copy or use a mass of contractions. Both the initials and the letters O.W. next to it were cut as two separate blocks by Gill on wood. The other capitals are all printed from various sizes of the golden cockerel type. Its capitals were also handsomely used on the title page, which is, by the way, the only page in the book on which an engraving by Gibbings appears. That golden cockerel device, you see, is the largest of seven versions of a strutting cockerel that he engraved and which were first used in 1929. From the wording on this page, you'll notice that the text of the authorized version was used for this edition. As head of the Protestant Church in England, King James had authorized the translation in 1611, but Gill, as a Catholic, tried unsuccessfully to persuade Gibbings, who had remained faithful to the uh, Protestant Church, he tried to persuade him to use the Douay translation, and asked pointedly what authority had King James to authorize a Bible. Well, though Gill lost that argument, the authorized version of the four Gospels did give him magnificent opportunities, which he seized magnificently. For each of the four, he engraved a handsome, separate half-title. Here you see Gill's engraving for the Angel of St. Matthew. For each of the Gospel half-titles, 
the name was printed from type with printer's rules forming the box around the letters. The engraving for each half title incorporated the outer rule of the box. To show you how these engravings were prepared, I want to show you now this preparatory sketch for the bull calf of St. Luke, and will then show you three states of the engraving which Gill made from this design. This sketch was slightly simplified when it was cut on wood. Here, the bull stands free with no pasture beneath his hooves. I'm going to jump about a bit so you can see the comparison, all right? At this stage, Gill would send away his engraving to have the unwanted surrounding black area routed away by his friend R.J. Beedham, a highly skilled trade engraver for whose book on uh, wood engraving Gill had written an introduction. The next stage was to add the subtle te texture needed to the hide of the bull. However, Gill's critical eye spotted four places where the line required further attention, and these he marked in pencil. Let me point these out to you, because again, I'll, just, I'll go back here, 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 and here. Notice particularly his marks near the calf's hind legs, both between the legs where they cross, also near his tail, and now see what a difference was made by correcting the engraving to produce this. I'll go back again so that you can see the differences and forward again to the final version. Now for a comparison between one of Gill's sketches and his finished engraving. For a passage in St. Luke describing Christ at Emmaus, Gill in worked into his sketch for the word and, a scene in which the figure of Christ sits at the end of a table, stretching out his hands to Cleopas and another follower. Now, look at the sketch above and see how, with a pen, Gill gave Christ a radiant halo. But when he came to engrave this design, of which you see a proof below, you'll notice that he had by then realized the complication that he'd made for himself of engraving lines that went through the D. And so he simplified the shape to a simple circular nimbus. Incidentally, the events described at Emmaus are only described by Luke and Mark, and by far the longer account is given by Mark, which is an example of the care taken in choosing the subject to be illustrated. For quite a different reason, a far more radical change had to be made when Gill came to engrave this charming sketch to illustrate Matthew's account of Christ's journey on Palm Sunday. It is a charming and ingenious design, with the initial N beautifully integrated into the scene. But unluckily for Gill, the verse in fact begins with the word and when they drew nigh unto Jerusalem, and not now. So Gill altered the scene thus so as to use the same scene, but with the letter N replaced by A. Not perhaps quite as pleasing as his first sketch, but with Christ's hand steadying himself on the crossbar of the A as he turns to look back. On a number of occasions, Gill improved considerably upon his original sketch when he rendered it on wood. Here is his sketch for the initial word and, into which he's introduced a scene of Mary Magdalene washing the feet of Christ. Evidently, it struck him later 
that with both the figures dressed in black, the falling tresses of Mary Magdalene's hair looked a trifle confusing when rendered so dark. And therefore, when the engraving was made, her tresses were given a much lighter treatment. He also improved the way in which the right arm of Christ goes through the upper part of the letter A. On every page where an engraving appeared, it fitted the space perfectly. Here, for example, is a scene showing the beheading of John the Baptist with the executioner's right foot and his upturned sword running into the margin around the text, while the distant figure representing his rising spirit fills part of the space of the line above. In a way, this is typical of the cheerful view taken in this edition of the narrative. The beheading of John is but the start of his life eternal, while the executioner wields his sword more like a batsman on an English cricket field than a murderous executioner. For an example of the attention given to the meaning and importance of the text, look at the way in which capital letters have been used on the left-hand page for the passage fittingly marked with a small engraving of a large chalice, which contains the words which are perpetuated in the service of Holy Communion. And notice how beautifully the engraving of the scene at Gethsemane at the top of the right-hand page sits in its position, and again with what skill the figures of Christ, Peter, and the sons of Zebedee have been combined with the four letters of the word when, which Gill has pared down by eliding T, H, and E together. In much the same way as the communion message was given prominence here, so later was the Lord's Prayer in Luke's Gospel, and here too the passage set in capitals was marked by a small engraving of a praying man. The care given to the design of the engravings and their integration with the typography of the text was matched by the personal care which was given to the actual printing of the sheets by Robert Gibbings, who's standing here examining a sheet with the pressman, A.C. Cooper, who you saw earlier. Cooper wrote that Gibbings personally passed each form after it had been made ready for printing, and he also said that Gibbings treated his employees most kindly and generously. The handmade sheets of paper on which the four gospel edition was printed were all damped before printing to make the paper more receptive to the inked impression of the type and engravings. The printed sheets which you can see here above the heads of the two men at the top of the slide can be identified as those on which this splendid illustration of the baptism of Christ was worked into the opening of the gospel according to St. John. Notice the inventiveness of the disposition of the three letters which make up the word the, and then the dexterity with which the figures have been placed in relation to the three letters. Less gifted engravers might have been discouraged by the number of verses in the four Gospels which begin with the word and, so I'll now show you four examples of how Gill worked his illustrations into that word. In this, for the Last Supper, as told by Mark, the letters are staggered in depth so that Christ appears between the nearest letter A and the middle letter N. His disciple is on a more distant plane behind the letter D, and notice how the forms of the letter N and D again have been elided. Into another version of the word and, Gill worked this scene of the nativity. The figures once again are placed at varying distances from the reader.
And notice here, for those of you interested in letter forms, the form of terminal given to the feet of the letter A uh, and to the top of the vertical stroke of the letter D, a sort of forked effect. An even greater impression of recession, of distance, is to be seen in this illustration of Christ driving out the money changers. In some of Gill's earlier books for the Golden Cockerel Press, he'd made quite excessive use, in my opinion, of this kind of floriation, which here encircles the figure of Christ. But he used floriation with great restraint in the four Gospels, and combined it here, and combined here, as it is, with a suggestion of the columns of the temple. I think it comes off very well. And for my last example of his skill in working illustration on the word and, here is a large engraving for the burial of Christ. The central pictorial scene is perfectly balanced over the letters beneath, and here Gill's floriation is effectively used to hold the entire composition together. Just to show you how difficult this blending of letters with illustration can be, let me now show you some engravings made by Robert Gibbings in the mid-thirties for advertisements put out by the Orient Line. Coming from as good an engraver as Gibbings, the results are naturally by no means bad, but they just aren't in the same class, world class, as Gill's. I don't want to give, seem to be knocking Gibbings by comparing his engravings with Gill's, nor do I want to fail to give credit to him the credit he deserves for the intricate typographical detail which commands my admiration on so many pages of his four Gospels. Look, for example, at the typographical arrangement on this page in St. Luke's Gospel. From the uneven inking of the type and the character of the drawing, you'll realize that this is a proof on which Gill has drawn his sketch. But those lines in capitals which occupy so much of the lower half of the page look quite ill at ease here and see how much they've been improved in the final printing. The spacing of the capitals as they grade down is far superior. See how they were before. Before I move on to another page, I do want to make one criticism of this illustration. It shows the visitation of the Virgin Mary to Elizabeth, her cousin, and the mother of John the Baptist. Now, Elizabeth, according to St. Luke, quotes, conceived a son in her old age. And with that description in mind, she is generally, usually, represented as an elderly lady with her head veiled. Here, I assume the figure at the left to be the Virgin Mary, and that the other figure with a staff in her left hand is that of Elizabeth. But we must accept that Gill made no attempt at portraiture in these engravings, and the effects he created were through composition and attitudes of figures, not by facial expression. Gill could also achieve striking effects like this by picking out two highly significant words from the middle, the middle, not the start, of a verse, a verse which in full reads, and he said unto them, Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. So these emotive directions for evangelization are given this great prominence in Mark's gospel. As an example of the harmonious way in which Gill and Gibbings collaborated, look at the elegant and cheerful letter N on the left side of this opening. When Gibbings saw a proof, he suggested to Gill that an appropriate touch of color might be provided if Gill were to engrave a capital N with a fish hanging from the top of its prolonged serif. Gill wrote Gibbings, jumped at the idea with a happy result you see here. 
Gill seems to have been just as much at ease making a small engraving like this as he was with a large subject like this for John's description of the creation. Running down the oblique stroke of the large letter N, Gill has engraved a quotation in Latin from the Vulgate, which is taken from Isaiah chapter 63, and which reads in part, when translated, Who is this that cometh from Edom with dyed garments from Bosra? Adam and Eve can be seen at the left, and the eagle of St. John flies off at the right. Another oh, magnificent I think I'll wake up. Another magnificent and large engraving was made to illustrate... Sorry, I got thrown by my problems. Yeah, okay, yes. I'm big, we are getting right. I just got thrown by my light going. From Mark's account of the deposition from the cross. Although this occupies a full page except for the single line at the foot, it illustrates a text which falls right in the middle of Mark's 15th chapter. Relating his composition so closely to the shape of the capital A has meant narrowing so much that it lacks some of the majesty which you find in paintings of this scene, but which ensures that the composition fits perfectly into the typographical scheme which Gill and Gibbings devised. Immediate, unrouted proof, you'll see that the Hound of St. Dominic, with a burning brand in its mouth, has been added below the figure of the sir, and at the left, a small child has been inserted between the adults. To give a better impression of the design, here is the scene as it was finally engraved and printed. You'll see that the right-hand page actually reads on from the sentence at the foot of the left page. This appears near the end of St. John's Gospel, and only in his text will you find the full phrase written by Pilate, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. By the way, Gill was a tertiary in the Order of St. Dominic and used the emblem of the dog with the flaming brand, not only here, but in the printer's device he engraved for his own printing office called Hagen Gill, uh, Hague being one of his sons-in-law. It's possible that Gill, as a member of the Order of St. Dominic, saw the hound, which in Latin is Domini Carnes, Domini Carnes, meaning the Lord's dog, as an emblem of his adherence to the Dominican, Dominican order. You see the Latin uh, connection. I have two more slides to show you of the final pages of this last gospel. Once again, in choosing for his subject Thomas's doubt, Gill and Gibbings chose an incident which was only related in the gospel where it's illustrated. Here, the engraving comes close to Christ's instruction to Thomas to thrust his hand into his side and bidding him not to be faithless, but believing. The book ended with this quiet and dignified page where, once again, the capitals are effectively used for the whole of the final sentence. But Gibbings had one more thing to ask of Gill for this book. Writing to him on the 23rd of November, 1931, these were his words, and they tell quite a lot about the relationship between the two men. My dear Eric, your postcard to end. I can't remember what we said about the Gospels, but I think it was £250. However, it's all written down, and when M, meaning Mara, his wife, gets back next week, we'll verify. I think it would give the final flip 
to the vellums, meaning the 12 copies printed on vellum, if they had a design on the cover. So, if you would do me one, I'd be very glad. If I could have it here by Thursday morning, I would take it up when I go that day. You must come and spend a night soon when M gets back. I'll come and fetch you in the car. Lots of love. Yours ever, Robert. This letter Gill marked with the word good, and he also sketched out some possible designs in pencil on the back of Gibbings's letter. Then, with his usual speed, he completed this drawing the very day that Gibbings' letter had been delivered to him. It was made with an appointed oval shape, which he'd used for a small initial T right at the opening word of, Go uh, of Mark's Gospel. And you'll notice his annotation that this design was to be tooled on the cover of vellum copies. And to give you an idea how the design looked when it was finally blocked in gold, here's a close-up photographed from copy number one of this book, which is now in Stanford University Library. Even more rare than the 12 vellum copies with this blocking are the original wood engravings which Gill fretted, blackened and mounted for sale, at the same time filling them with gesso so that the engraving could be discerned. Here is one such piece from the large Gill collection at the Humanities Research Centre at Austin. There isn't much left of the gesso, so it's only fair to show how this block looked when printed in the edition. It's an illustration to Matthew's account of Peter and the cock, which Gill worked into the word when. The cock perched on the crossbar of the letter E, and the shapes of the letters H and E elided together in the same way that you've seen in several earlier slides. Gill lived another nine years after completing the four Gospels, but never, in my opinion, did he ever do anything finer in the way of book illustration. Perhaps the most remarkable aspect of his uh, uh, admirable work was the way in which he managed to uh, carry on with sculpture while uh, producing this vast volume of work for the Golden Cockerel Press. And in this, my last slide, you see him at work on a piece of work which you will now find at the uh, Hospital for the Blind, Moorfields, in London. The subject is Christ healing the blind man and it shows Gill once again combining his pictorial gifts with a great feeling for letter forms. And now if we could have the lights on back again I just would like to take up three minutes of your time still by trying to sum up and complete what I've said. Looking back many years later at the Golden Cockerel Press, Gibbings made this comment about the work I've shown you. It would be false modesty, he wrote, if I didn't here admit that I like the book. I'm sorry that I didn't make the pages a fraction taller in proportion to their width, my fault entirely. I'm sorry I didn't justify the lines, only partly my fault. But otherwise I feel that my seven years of apprenticeship before I began work on the Gospels were not spent in vain. Two years after he published the four Gospels, which sold out fast, the effects of the Depression reduced the demand for private press books to a point which obliged Gibbings to sell the Golden Cockerel Press to Christopher Sandford, under whose direction it continued to operate until the late 1950s. 
Sanford then sold the press to Thomas Yosiloff of this city, who announced in July 1978 that plans were then underway for a new generation of cockerels on which some of the finest designers were already at work. To the best of my knowledge, none of that generation has actually been published, but I do know that Yosiloff generously allowed the golden cockerel type to be used at the Rampant Downs Press in Cambridge, England by Will and Sebastian Carter, who've put it to use with their customary skill and taste. My own fascination with the Golden Cockerel edition of the Four Gospels was stimulated a few years ago by discovering the original page paste-ups with Gill's sketches at Harvard University. In England, I found Gill's designs for the, tape, uh, for the type and some correspondence about the uh, way in which it was to be executed. Uh, so much of the planning of the masterpiece was done when Gill and Gibbings met for discussions that relatively little else about their planning was committed to paper. But luckily, I did manage to locate several revealing documents at the Clark Library in Los Angeles, where I was able to study Gill's diaries, and those contained a great many entries relating to his work on the Four Gospels. At the St. Bride Printing Library, I've been able to study Gill's original designs for the Golden Cockerel Press type, and while visiting the Humanities Research Center at Austin and the Gleason Library in San Francisco, I've come across other relevant material. Soon after I get back to London, and I am off tomorrow morning, I intend to get round to writing a full account of the things I've shown you and described to you this evening. A London firm who's already published an account of the making of the Kelmscott uh, Chaucer uh, would like to publish my text, and we've had a trial illustration proofed at Meriden. I really ought to finish my text soon, but unfortunately, I can't get out of my mind an old adage that must go back to the time before Moses came down from that mountain. You won't find it in the Bible, but the way it goes is this. Never on any account write anything today which you know you'll write better tomorrow. Writing is a solitary affair, so it's been very encouraging for me to be able to share the story with you this evening. And thanks to you, it should be a lot easier for me to get down to the work of writing when I get back to London. But I don't know if I can avoid being intimidated by what Gibbings called a jolly good yarn, the text of the four Gospels. Thank you very much.